all semester, we've been looking at encounters that Jesus has with all kinds of people in John's gospel. Um, To this point, we've seen Jesus encounter people uh, in different situations, disease, um, sexual addiction, pride, judgmentalism, blindness, hunger. And we've seen him interact with people in all these places in all kinds of different ways. Tonight's passage is climactic in this way. This passage is the epic battle scene between Jesus and death. This is Wonder Woman versus Ares. It's the Allied forces in World War II versus the German army. It's Gandalf and his followers versus the orcs. It is King Leonidas and the Spartan versus the Persian army. It is even Team Edward versus Team Jacob. For those of you Twilight lovers out there from your junior high days, it's light versus dark. This passage shows us the epic battle between Jesus and death. And in it, we see Jesus look straight into death and he says, bring it. I can handle all that you've got. And here's going to be the reality and the challenge for, uh, for you, for me even somewhat, certainly for you, is that most likely you don't think about death that much. Uh, you're in the prime of your life. You're probably as healthy as you're ever going to be. Uh, you've got your life ahead of you. You're here in college as kind of a springboard to everything that's coming later. So unless you've had like some particular circumstances in your family or in your life or maybe sickness, like you probably haven't thought a ton about death. Some of you definitely have. Many of you haven't. About Maybe you've thought about death abstractly, but for yourself, it's not been much of a reality. And, and this passage kind of jumps in and confronts that in two ways. And the first thing I wanted to help us realize is that it, it puts on our reality and on our radar that as much as we don't want to think about death, it is a 100% sure reality. It's coming. You will meet it. And secondly, what I want to suggest is that, is that pain, all the pain you feel in your life, is ultimately finding its pinnacle and its climax in death. So death is behind even all the pain you feel right now. So tonight we're going to see what Jesus does with that. What Jesus does with pain and death. And it is at the same time both utterly disturbing and the most hopeful and comforting message you will ever hear. We're going to read this longer passage in sections as we go along. I'm not going to read it on the front end. So first, tonight, what I want us to see is that Jesus waits in the midst of pain and death. Turn with me or look there in your bulletin to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister, uh, Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom, you lo- he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. 
So we need to just acknowledge together that this is not what we think would happen. This is not the, the math that makes sense at this point with what we know about Jesus. If you've been here at all, if you know much about Jesus at all, you look at this math and you say, if, there is, um, if there's a Jesus who can do something about sickness and death, then you have these beloved friends and their sick brother. Powerful Jesus plus sick friend equals miracle time. Like it is time for Jesus to show up and do something amazing right now. And look at verse 6. That's not what it says. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two days longer. Some of you uh, are in this room tonight, and, and you're not yet convinced of Christianity and its truth claims. And this may be one of the very reasons you're not. Because this is kind of the classic, the classic picture of what philosophers or theologians call the issue of theodicy. And it looks like this. That you have, on one hand, this claim that there's an all-powerful God who can do anything. And on the other hand, you have an all-loving God who should want to do things about things that are broken, things that are messed up, pain and death. And so if you have an all-powerful God and an all-loving God, then that should equate to a world where there is no pain and suffering. If you follow that logic, the conclusion works like this. If this, if this, then no pain. There is pain, therefore there is no God. Even if you're here tonight and you're already a disciple of Jesus and, and you've, you've been convinced at some level with Christianity, it's not to say you don't ever struggle with the beliefs therein, but, but even if you would call yourself a Christian, I bet you've wondered why in the middle of difficult situations... Right in the middle of pain, right in the middle of, of your aunt being sick, your grandfather passing away, your mom's cancer, someone dying, someone getting worse, your own pain and suffering. You've probably looked at God and said, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why haven't you fixed this? Why have you allowed this to happen to me or to my friend or to my mom or my dad? And the pain is real. Mary and Martha felt this tension too. The pain was very real. We'll, we'll read in just a moment that when Jesus finally does come, they both ask him the same question. They, they look at him and said, Jesus, actually it's not a question. They look at him and said, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Like, what's the deal, man? You love us. We're your friends. We're your people. If you would have come earlier, our brother would still be alive. You've got some explaining to do. And what this encounter with Jesus forces us to wrestle with is this question. Do you have a category for a God who waits? Do you have a category in your conception of God for a God who waits and who doesn't come right now and snap his fingers and make everything better? Do you have room for a God who will allow pain in the near term for purposes that will be revealed maybe only one day, someday in glory? Do you have a category for a God like that? 
Louis C.K. is a comedian, um, super funny, can't recommend everything he says and does, um, but this one was pretty clean. He was on Conan one night uh, several years ago, and he's telling a story about, uh, well, Conan asks him, says, tell me about fatherhood, and Louis C.K. tells a story about his dog. So um, he, he never had a dog, and he went and adopted a dog, a 70-pound dog, and as he was kind of getting the instructions from the, the person at the shelter, or maybe the vet, whenever he took the dog in, that person gave him very clear instructions and said, this will be a great dog. There's one thing this dog cannot do. You cannot let this dog eat dark chocolate. And if it does, it will die. And if it does, you're on, the only absolute possible way to maybe keep it from dying is you have to get hydrogen peroxide into this dog's stomach. You have to feed the dog hydrogen peroxide. So, you know, it's one of these, Louis K's like, oh, yeah, okay, I got it, I got it. Takes the dog home. Six months later, some friends of his had come over to his house, and they left some Polish dark chocolate sitting around. He didn't realize it. He comes home from work the next day. And there's what? There's the wrapper everywhere. And he looks at his dog with the, with the brown chocolate all over its snout. And he goes and grabs his dog and he realizes, I don't have hydrogen peroxide. So he puts his dog on the leash and they go running, <laughs> they go running out of the apartment. And it's funny to hear him say it because he's like narrating what his dog's thinking. He's like, oh, this is really fun. We've never done this before. Like, and he's like, yeah, because I don't exercise. Anyway, so uh, they go down to a pharmacy and he ties his dog up outside and he runs in and buys hydrogen peroxide and he runs out. And then it kind of dawns on him. He's like, how am I going to get my dog to drink hydrogen peroxide? And so he starts like splashing it on its snout and the dog's, you know, wrestling it away. But it's a big dog. He says it's like an alligator. So he's like, I've got an alligator hole and he's got it under his arm. And he's pouring the peroxide, like trying to get some of it into his mouth. And the dog's just throwing him around. And so he says, I'd start hitting my dog. I'm like punching my dog, trying to beat it into submission. And he says, and I look up and a crowd has gathered around me. <laughs> And people are standing there, and they're wondering what I'm doing. And I look at them, and I'm trying to save my dog's life, and I'm hitting it to get it to stop, to stop moving around. And I keep pouring hydrogen peroxide on its face and trying to get it in its mouth. And he said, and then eventually enough got in there, and my dog starts acting like a water pump. And it's hilarious to watch him do it. He's like, <laughs> and then he said, this brown foam starts coming out of his dog's mouth. And his dog lives. Sometimes following God makes you feel like the crowd. And you're looking at the stuff around you in people's lives. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? And it's not funny. And sometimes following God and walking with Jesus feels like the dog. You're just taking it. And it hurts. Do you have a category for a God who is willing to let you endure pain for some greater purpose that he has caused? This is a God who waits. And let me go just a little bit deeper with that before we move on. If this is the tension that has ultimately led you to reject God, or has you really questioning if God is ultimately good, I want to ask this. 
in a, in a humble way, I'm not trying to be uh, mean about this. If that's why you've rejected God, because he won't do things on your own terms and time limit, might it be that you've constructed a God that you want to exist? You've made God into your image. And in so doing, you've kind of become God. You've said, if there's a God, he must be this way. And friends, though we would never, none of us would say we want to be God, we would never claim to be God, are we acting like God? When we say, God, you must do things on my terms, in my way, in my time. And if you don't, then I'm going to declare that you don't exist. I, just, I want us to feel the weight of that. Um, it doesn't sound prideful. It doesn't sound like some big religious trap, but that's a scary position to be in. And, and if that is you and you're really honestly wrestling with this and you want to talk more about that, I would love to talk to you about that. Do you have a, ca- a category for a God who waits? But Jesus doesn't just wait. He weeps. I'm going to skip down to verse 17 read a little bit there. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus weeps. I was, uh, I was recently re-listening to a TED Talk by uh, Brene Brown. I, I mentioned her in here before. She's a researcher down at the University of Houston. Does a lot of research around issues of shame and vulnerability and stuff like that. And in one of her talks, she's talking about her research that she does with men. And she says that, you know, men can be... Lots of things in this world, but the one thing that a man absolutely cannot be is weak. And she says that any sign of vulnerability or weakness is just 
Like, it is intolerable in this society for men. Men have to be macho, and they have to have this, like, invisible force field of togetherness. And, and I cannot cry. I cannot show weakness. If I do, I'll lose my job, my, my wife, my kids, they won't respect me. And, and she goes on and on and talks about the fallout from that. Now, I imagine that Brene Brown would also say that, that women experience that differently, though not altogether unlike that. They experience it in different degrees, but, but look, I... Y'all, women, you don't get a lot of, of room either to be weak in that sense, to be vulnerable. And if you do, and if you are, you get called what? Emotional. But, oh, she's just emotional, and you kind of get written off as like not being able to process life the right way. Oh, she's so emotional. Oh. Weakness and weeping in any sign of, of distress with the way the world is, is just... It's not tolerated. And I want us to look in this passage at how Jesus comes right into the middle of that and says there's a way to look into sadness and pain and death and react. You don't have to just say things like this, like, well, I know everything happens for a reason, and therefore I'm not going to be sad or anything right now. No, Jesus comes and says different things to that. The first thing I want you to see here about Jesus that, is that he is very aware, he is very aware that God is at work behind the scenes here. Look in verse 4 and verse 15. In verse 4 he says, I know this is going to turn out for God's glory. And in verse 15 he says, it's going to turn out for your good. Jesus knows that there is a point to his waiting. He knows that he's not going to heal Lazarus right now because there's a point, there's something he's going to accomplish in this. And even with that knowledge, even knowing that there's going to be this amazing thing coming, he still weeps. The most fully human person who has ever lived in the history of the world knows everything and still weeps. friend, professor of mine from seminary named Dr. Kelly, he was at a funeral with his wife in Scotland when they lived over there. And he was, as he tells the story now, kind of making fun of himself. He was, he was kind of perturbed at the minister who was doing this funeral because the minister just couldn't hold it together. He just kept crying. He'd try to start and he would start crying again. He could not hold it together. And Dr. Kelly... He's a sweet man. He, he's more godly than anybody I know. He leaned over to his wife and said, I wish he would just hold it together. And his wife leaned over to him and said, Are you more holy than Jesus? <laughs> and he tells the story and he's just like, Dang. <laughs> Jesus weeps. In his full humanity, Jesus weeps. And I want you to look right in the middle of that. And I want you to know that some of you need to weep. Some of you need to leave RUF tonight and walk home by yourself. Or maybe grab a good, trusted friend. And you need to go cry. Because those things that happened to you were real. The thing your mom said to you, you cannot forget. That happened. The thing that he did to you, 
That wasn't supposed to happen. The Me Too campaign, it's sad. It's awful. It's... You need to cry about that. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Pain is real. Death is here. Some of your stories are just unbelievably sad and hard. And Jesus, by his weeping, is inviting you into, into a humanity that allows you to weep. Don't try to be more whole and holy than Jesus. You can weep. Another thing we see in this is that Jesus, in the very midst of his humanity, also is God. And therefore, he shows us what the heart of God is like. What is the heart of God like? The heart of God is sad at the condition of this world. He is sad at pain. He is sad at death. God is sad over all that's wrong. There's a really great passage in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, the book, The Magician's Nephew. And in it, Diggory, the main character, um, he's in Narnia, which is the, you know, the, the wonderland of sorts. And, but while he's in Narnia, he can't, he can't stop thinking about his mom, who's deathly ill back in, in our world, in the real world. And in the midst of that, he keeps thinking that, that this Aslan character will be the key to healing her. And he has this vision of that happening. And, and so he finally encounters Aslan and just blurts out almost uncontrollably and says, Please, please, won't you cure my mother? And as C.S. Lewis writes, that, that Diggory looks up at Aslan and his huge face, the great and fierce lion head bent down right in front of him, and he looks up in amazement in that lion's face. And he sees these huge tears welling up in Aslan's eyes. Tears that made Diggory's tears and his sadness look small by comparison. And Lewis says this, Those tears were so big compared to Diggory's that for a moment he felt, he felt as if the lion must be really, must be sorrier about his mother's condition than he was himself. Friends, God himself looks down into your pain. He looks down into the pain of the world, and his tears are bigger than yours. Your sadness is real, and so is God's. He weeps. Thirdly, we see in this little thing, this point, that, that you don't have to pull yourself together to come to Jesus. Did you see the different responses between Mary and Martha? Martha gets up and she runs out and meets Jesus on the way and she's just peppering him. You, you can see like, if you had been here, all this, but what does it say about, about Mary? Look in verse 20. Mary could, didn't have it in her. She just couldn't pull it together and it says that she stayed at the house. If we were using terminology from our day, we would probably look and say Mary's depressed. She couldn't leave the house. She couldn't give up, get up. And yet, read verse 28. After Martha had met with Jesus, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. Come to Jesus in your depression, in your pain. He invites Mary, and he invites you. You don't have to be undepressed before you come to Jesus. You don't have to have your situation figured out. You don't have to have your pain all dealt with and put in a bow. You come now. And what's super interesting about this is that 
when it says that at the invitation that Mary rose quickly and went. Those words right there are the exact same words that are used of Jesus when he rises from the dead. That at the very words and the very invitation of Jesus, Mary goes from her death of sorts. That's what depression feels like, doesn't it? Like you just want, you just want to die. At the very beckoning of Jesus, come, come to me, Mary. Life. She raises and she goes to him. Friends, you need to hear Jesus calling you out of that place. In your weeping, in your sadness, he's calling you to him. And he doesn't, he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. He doesn't say we need to get that cleaned up. He says, come to me. I'm the God who weeps with you in that. Third main point tonight, that Jesus rages. So Jesus waits, Jesus weeps. Thirdly, Jesus rages. In those verses I just read, verse 33 and 38, look at those in particular. It says that Jesus was deeply moved. Deeply moved. Um, okay, great. That word means, the force and the thrust of that word means that Jesus was indignant. He was angry. It's used in other Greek literature of of the condition of a war horse, a horse that's been trained for battle that is, is on the front lines just roaring and ready to go out and thrust itself into the enemy lines. That's what Jesus is right now. He is deeply moved. He is indignant. He is angry. Why? Because he is going to look at the final enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about death, and he calls death the last enemy. And I know this isn't normally how we think of Jesus. We think of Jesus mostly in the gift shop, um, in like a little card section, saying sweet things, petting lambs with his nice pasty white skin. That's not nice. That's not Jesus either. Jesus is angry at what this world has done. He is angry at sin. He is angry at its effects. He's angry about death. And I think there's got to be part of you that wants that to be true. That wants a God who gives a care about this world and its brokenness. Who doesn't just try to massage it away and say, it'll all be better, but who looks it right in the face and says, I'm coming for you. It's been several years now, but the movie Taken was amazing. In the movie Taken, it's like the most intense movie of this century. Um, in the movie Taken, Liam Neeson plays a guy named Brian, uh, Brian Mills. And Brian Mills' daughter, Kim, is going abroad with some friends. And she lands in Paris, and she gets in a cab, and, and she lets it slip that she and her friends are alone. And this cab driver is part of this Algerian mob, and the cab driver... Human tra- takes Kim and her friends, puts them into the human trafficking. And, and the rest of the story is about Liam Neeson, Brian Mills, finding out about his daughter's abduction and pursuing her at all costs. And there are some amazing lines in there. When he calls the guy, oh, I can't even tell you, it's so good. He calls him and says, I'm coming. I have a special set of skills. Essentially what he's saying is, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. I'm going to be victorious, you're going to die. Because I love my daughter and I'm coming to get her. 
Jesus here is looking at this tomb. He's looking at this death that has consumed his friend, and he is angry, and he's saying, I'm coming to get him. I'm coming to get him. And so that's the last thing we see is that Jesus raises. You can't manage this Jesus, but you can trust him with what hurts you. Because he looks into the tomb and he raises things to life. Let's read the last part right there. Jesus said, verse 39, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is it. Jesus Jesus stares into death. He stares at the last enemy. And he says a word. And death dies. Lazarus come out. And at the very word of Jesus, death is thrown back. Life enters back in. Lazarus comes out fully alive after four days of death. I guess there's some of you who are thinking, that's pretty cool. That's a neat story. What does this have to do with me? I'm in college in Tulsa. Friends, I'm going to tell you it has everything to do with you. Let me show you how. Look back in verse 3 and 4 in the bulletin or in your Bible. Mary and Martha had sent someone to Jesus and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard that, he said, this illness does not lead to death. But then what happens in the story? Lazarus dies. So which is it? Does the illness lead to death or does it not? There's a a Bible scholar named Frederick Bruner who's written a commentary on on the book of John, and he helps has this amazing thought with this. And he is a Greek scholar. He knows it all. And he looks and says that when that phrase says that this illness does not lead to death, what it's saying is this this illness does not end in death. He doesn't say that this illness doesn't pass through death. He's just saying it doesn't terminate in death. And so what Jesus is saying to his friends right there and to the messenger who came is, yeah, Lazarus... He may die, but it's not going to end there. And that's actually why later in verse 11, Jesus looks up and says, he's asleep. And that's actually why the balance in the rest of the New Testament writers, when they talk about death, they call it being asleep. Because what do you do when you sleep? You sleep. What do you do after you sleep? You get up. You live. You go live another day. You go back to school. You go back to class. So here's the reality. Jesus speaks the word. Lazarus comes out from his sleep and he lives. But here's the other reality. Lazarus would go back to sleep one day. He would die fully and finally at some point. So what is your ultimate hope 
in life and in death, in the midst of your pain and your sorrow. The ultimate hope that's held out to you in the gospel is that Jesus has come as the greater Lazarus. Because when Jesus came, he didn't just come to go to sleep. He came to experience death in its fullness. He let death have all of him. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's the very thing that happened in the beginning in Genesis 3, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he promised them they would surely die. It would be a full death. Bodily, spiritually, they would die. And when Jesus comes to this world, he came to die. And that's what he does at the cross. He dies. He takes what your sin and my sin deserve. The wages of sin is death and he dies. But there's more than that. He dies spiritually. He he gets the death that we deserve spiritually. He is separated from God on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus comes and experiences death to the fullest and it utterly crushes him. So that it doesn't have to crush you. He dies so that you can fall asleep. He is overcome by everything that pain and death leads to. So that your pain doesn't ultimately have to lead to the death that you feel that you fear it will. And then after death takes Jesus for three days. On the third day it says that God raises him from the dead. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this in 1 Corinthians 15, says this. He says that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean for you? It means that, that you can stare at the pain of your life now. And you can look honestly at the certain death of your future and you can say, Okay, is that all you've got? You don't have to minimize it. You don't have to act like it's not there. But you can look it square in the face and say, the cross has shown me that there can be purpose in pain. And the resurrection has shown me that there can be life after death. What is the worst thing that can happen to me? Bring it. Sometimes we sing a song called Jesus on my cross have taken in it and says, God, in your service, pain is pleasure. How can you say that? How could anyone ever say that? Because in Jesus, pain doesn't lead to death. It leads to sleep. And life comes, comes after. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is living forever right now. Friends, if you're in Christ, you're going to be part of that harvest. He's the first one. He's the farmer looking at that first apple and saying, isn't it pretty? And he turns around and there are fields waiting to be harvested. And Jesus is going to come back and He's going to get us. Dwight Moody was a famous evangelist in early in American history. And he was preaching his first funeral. He was young. And he went to look for a passage to preach in the Bible. And he couldn't find a passage where Jesus preached at a funeral because every time Jesus encountered death, people came back to life. And then he had a realization. He said, maybe that's the point. That in Jesus, all that, all that goes to die just goes to sleep. And it ends in life. 
Friends, you can bring your pain, you can bring your death to Him. In Jesus, your sin is forgiven. The death has been taken care of. There's life being held out to you. Let's pray together.